Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Yes, hello everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the ESPN Footy Podcast uh, for another week. Plenty to talk about as always. Rowan Connolly is back on the podcast this week. Rowan, welcome uh, along. Good to be here. Uh, interesting round of footy. Some uh, big statements made. Uh, good to see my team jag an Anzac Day win. Doesn't happen that often, so I did enjoy it. Been rare in recent uh, recent years, I, I think. Um, so it must be always nice to get a win on such a big day like that. Oh, it certainly is. Oh, look, it's a great occasion. You know, I, they're they're not travelling well either of those clubs, but uh, gives you a sort of temporary up. Yeah, absolutely. I think whenever you play one of uh, your bigger rivals. Uh, the standard of play tends to, you know, not quite uh, reflect where the where the teams are at, and I think we kind of got that on Sunday. That's one of my favourite cliches, uh, Matt. No matter where they are on the ladder. Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good footyism. Uh, we did footyisms a couple of years back, Jake Michaels, and uh, we had some good ones. So we should add that one to the list. We should. Uh, good to be back for another episode, um, and I'm very pleased that I have a new microphone in front of me because. My voice, well, I'm not, I don't particularly like my voice at the best of times, but it's been sounding pretty average uh, with uh, the, the audio and the mics that we had prior to this. But we finally got our new ones down um, and very excited for, for today's episode. You are sounding very, very nice indeed. Christian Jolly, you've also got a microphone there at the Champion Data offices. I dropped it off personally. Uh, good to hear you uh, back on the podcast again for another week. Yeah, thanks for bringing the mic by and yeah, excited for another pod. <laughs> Very good. Uh, before we jump into a pretty chock-a-block agenda, to be fair, there's there's plenty to talk about. Um, clubs underperforming, clubs overperforming, uh, some other bits and pieces that we're going to chat about. Uh, but before we do that, something from the weekend that grabbed your attention that we might otherwise miss. Jake, anything jump out uh, from the weekend for you? Well, I think you guys by now will know my uh, feelings and opinions on Ruckman um, and <laughs> Nick Nat Nui is one of the most hyped players in the comp. Everyone loves him. Everyone carries on about how great he is. And look, he does some good things on the football field. I'm not denying that. But when a team loses by almost 100 points and a team that is in the conversation for a flag in West Coast, you know, questions have to be asked. And you go and look back at Nick Nat Nui. And what really surprises me, not surprises me, but in the sense that I know he's been doing it for a long time, but surprised me in the sense that it hasn't changed is his lack of game time. Like he's only playing 60% of game time. And this is a guy that most people would say is a top 10 player in the comp. In my opinion, you cannot be a top 10 player in the comp. If you're, you're sitting on the bench four out of every 10 minutes, it's just not good enough. And you know, how can you have that much of an impact, you know, for, for what he does, imagine if he was playing, 85% 85% game time. What I, my question is, why has he played 12 or 13 seasons now, but he's never been able to play more than 60, 65% game time? That's my question. And that's what I, I have to look at that and say, it's not good enough. It's probably a conundrum that West Coast have, because again, we, we look at the numbers. He's one of the most dominant per 100 minutes players. So when he is on the field, he's having more impact than anybody else. But it is. But, but could you say the same about anyone if, every, if they were having... Uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's the conundrum. It's like, well, they're getting the best out of him because he's getting 60 minutes. If you increase him to 80 minutes per game, you might, you know, end up, yeah, making getting him injured or making him unfit and you will actually, you know, create more errors towards the end of games. I don't know. So it's that fine balance of yeah, getting the most out of your champions with, you know, with, with the skill set that they have. Is that it's, also, it's also a couple of, you know, his injury history means they have to be very careful with him. Yeah. Um, and the other one is that he, his impact is such like, I would almost argue he's more important to them than just about any 
other player in the competition outside perhaps Dusty Martin to their team. You know, he is such a barometer of their performance. They just, I, I sort of support them sort of wrapping him in cotton wool a bit. Just one last thing on, on Nat Nui. I know we've got to move on, but for all the talk about him, and I know the Brown, the, I know Brownlow um, votes aren't, aren't be all end all, but it's been 63 games since he's had a best on ground, according to the umpires. Yeah, but I'm umpires leave, are I'm notorious. With you guys. Umpires are notorious for not actually giving the best on ground, the, the three votes to the person who's best on ground. It's notoriously a Oh, yeah, it happens every single week. Um, so I, I'm not, I don't read too much into that, but I think you said that he had 28 Brownlow votes over his career. So it's not a, it's not a massive haul by any stretch. No, no, that's barely enough to win one if they're all in one season. Yeah, fair enough. Kevin Bartlett didn't win a Brownlow. Yeah, exactly right. And and Kevin Bartlett... Wait, Matthews didn't win a Brownlow. You know, some of the greatest forwards of all time. So, um, yeah, I know that you love your Brownlow, Jake, um, but maybe that's not quite the argument uh, because I think Nick Nuts, his impact on games is is really good. uh, And I don't think he needs Brownlow votes to sort of reflect. He doesn't need Brownlow votes to reflect, but I'm just saying, you got to, I I just question question whether he's get, whether whether they're getting enough out of him. That's what Mm. I think. I, I just, I truly believe he's the most overrated player in the competition. Oh, big call. Okay. Well, we've got to move on, but you've just said that. Uh, Christian, <laughs> something from the weekend uh, that grabbed your attention. Um, yeah, noticing a new 19th man out in the field. And um, it's probably been something that's been used in the past, but it's probably more noticeable this year with the new man on the mark rule and the man on the mark having to stand still is the guy with the ball in possession of the ball using the umpire as a <laughs> tool for the man on the mark and timing it very well. So, if you're a right footer or a left footer, you know which way you want to swing. If the umpire happens to be coming from that most dominant side um, and it runs in next to the player to set the mark on the opposition player, you take off just as the umpire stepping his last step. And you've seen so I've seen so many guys on the mark almost collide with the umpires coming in to set the mark. So, yeah, sort of watch it. And I sort of think, why do the umpires need to get that close to set the mark? Surely there's another way they can do it. But, um, yeah, 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 while they're doing it, it's probably a good tool for some of the smaller forwards and half four flankers to use to gain that extra two or three. Well, it's, it's funny the players that do it because the two players that I noticed, we talk about clever players, Dane Zorko and Toby Green, two of the two of the cleverest players on the ground and just using it to get that extra couple of metres, both kick goals by doing it. Hey, if you can take advantage of something like that, why aren't all players doing it? That's what I, that's what I think because there's nothing illegal about it. It's just a sort of a funny kind of thing to notice, I guess. Uh, Rowan, something from the, the weekend that grabbed your attention? Uh, it's a bit of a hobby horse, I'm afraid, but I, I've been really dirty all season on the broadcast uh, TV commentary teams calling games from interstate. And you get away with it last year because of coronavirus, but they've clearly identified it as an obvious cost-cutting measure. And mm-hmm. Uh, continued it and the worst part is they're not upfront about it so they never say it but they they get they've been caught out a few times and the worst one was on Sunday in that last game Port Adelaide against St Kilda when they actually lost the feed in the last quarter and lost and then they got the picture back but not the audio so Anthony Hudson and Dwayne Russell were calling like to this complete silence and they Hutto was just about losing it. Um, it. It sounded terrible. And, you know, this is, I can't think of another major sport in the world with the amount of money they bring in from broadcast rights where the broadcasters can't even be bothered mm. sending people to where the game is. And mm. the worst part is we play this game on the biggest field in world sport. It's far more important for the special comments guys rather than the play-by-play callers to see ahead and behind the ball 
and they can't. You know, they're not seeing anything better than what we're seeing, in which case I'd rather listen to myself call a game, to be perfectly honest. So mm. I, I, it's a real, you know, it's, it's unprofessional. It's not good enough, and it does the entire football public a grave disservice. One of the big issues as well is that the the games are often so zoomed in on that you can't see anything developing ahead of the play, and you can't see what's happening outside of uh, like a, a, a rolling mall at, at some times. You don't know where the spare players are, if they're at the back of the stoppage, if they're at the front of the stoppage, where the outlet is. Um, and I think that's probably, the like you mentioned, these are the special comments, guys. This is what they need to be seeing. Uh, and they can't. And it's uh, it's quite noticeable, even though they don't often say it. And I think it's a bit of a slap in the face to the viewers who have to watch ads. Uh, we're talking about Channel 7 in particular. They have to watch ads. And the ad breaks are longer than they were in 2019, for instance. So we're getting double the amount of ads-ish. Uh, and we're not even getting the premium product that we are paying for with our attention. Well, to, just another point to that. Russell Jackson wrote a terrific piece about this last year um, for the ABC, and it was about the camera angles. Now, all the clubs and coaches use the behind-the-goals vision. And from a tactical point of view, and for a special comments guy, nothing is better than that in demonstrating what they're talking about, about how teams set up. We mm. never get it. We only ever get it when a guy's kicking for goal when it's pretty meaningless. Mm. So they could be utilising stuff which would give the viewer a better insight into how the game is being played out. And they just don't do it. And I think it's, I suspect it's laziness as much as anything. They need to get the callers into the arc where they've got six screens in front of them and they can have all the views at once uh, and, and do something like that. Uh, plenty to get into. Oh, oh something I noticed. Oh, yeah, really quickly. Uh, pretty rare in footy that you get the old double poster. Uh, and I noticed that Nick Blakey hit the double poster uh, against the Suns up on Saturday afternoon. I made a little note and sort of said, oh, that's interesting. That kind of rarely happens, especially from where he was kicking, which was relatively straight in front. So it hit one post and then hit the other. Uh, and then the same day <laughs> in the evening game, uh, big Nank, Toby Nankervis is lining up from a, a much sharper angle and does the double poster in the, the uh, Melbourne-Richmond game. So two for one. I thought that what was the odds. Well, you know, I saw that and I thought Furphy will get an ad out of that. You know, the ad where the bladder goes through for a point and the weather goes, well, this could have two points. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was uh, that was interesting. Um, having the two on the, the same day must be a, quite a rare occurrence. Christian, I don't know if you got that stat in front of you. <laughs> no, I was, please don't ask me to give you a count of those because, no, we only count the initial. For, we, we can tell you how many times the left post was hit versus the right post, but not when they were both. No. There you go. Uh, plenty to chat about. Jake, we kind of touched on West Coast uh, off the top with your, your Nick Nat, uh, calling him sensationally, calling him overrated with the, your last little sentence there. I thought that was nice of you to sneak in. But their loss to Geelong, 97 points, was uh, disappointing. But was it surprising? I think it was surprising. Um, particularly for me, it was not so much. Uh, it was probably because Geelong's really struggled all year. Geelong hasn't played like the team we probably expected for the first five rounds going into that game. They were struggling and they were really struggling to score. Um, I think that was obviously no Jeremy Cameron until the weekend. And he came in and he, he played well, but certainly not to the extent where you'd think they're going to win by 15 goals. Um, they started pretty well, the Eagles. They look, It looked like it could be a pretty tight contest. And then they just got absolutely demolished in the midfield and the Cats were just doing what they wanted to um, in the forward line. And it was just... It got to the point where it was embarrassing, and, and Adam Simpson said after the game, you know, it was a it was a disgrace. Like that that was the worst performance they've had in a long, long time. Hmm. And we've spoken about how different they are on the road compared to um, over in Perth, where they're pretty much they look unbeatable at times over at, at Optus Stadium, and then they come on the road and 
and they look a, a shadow of the, of the team that played over in Perth the week before. But the only thing I would say about the Eagles, and it's not an excuse, but it is the reality, is they do have a lot of injuries. I think the Eagles have the most notable injury list of any team at the moment. Um, I, I would say probably seven of their best 10 players aren't playing. So um, there's a lot of players to come back in, but at the same time, you know, you, that injuries are part of the game and you've got to be able to do, you've got to be able to, to do a lot better than they did because that was an absolute shocker. Uh, just on Simpson, I, th- I think you mentioned that he was pretty forthright in his press conference, and, and he was. You know, embarrassing was one quote. Weak uh, that they were annihilated is another quote. And you can question our effort was said, uh, which I think is quite unusual for a coach to kind of say that in a press conference. They're always quite you know down the line, or oh, I didn't see this, or I didn't see that, or you know here's here's the good stuff that we're going to focus on. I think for Simpson to kind of pull that sort of stuff out in his post match press conference says a lot about that. And it was to me, it was a perfect storm because I know that we've talked about their home and road um, uh, home home and road records, but mm. the GMHBA Stadium, I don't think it's a kind venue for them to play at, especially with their style of play, which is very kick mark. It is a lot easier to defend such a narrow ground, and when you can't get space to have this sort of kick mark, I think they average 120 odd uh, marks a game, and they had 60 odd. Uh, on the weekend, which just, it just tells me they couldn't generate any kind of uh, any, and not momentum, but they couldn't generate the, the kind of footy that they want to play. And, and once it got to a point where they were just getting spanked, you know, Mitch Duncan kicks a, a, a worldie of a torpedo on half time. Um, you know, Adam Simpson said it, you can kind of question their effort. They kind of gave up. Well, they've only, they've only won once down there since 1999. Hmm. And that was in 2006. And even that one, they won by, a couple of points after being 53 points. I down. remember that game. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that, well, they went on and won the premiership, you know, but it is a notoriously hard venue to win at. For me, the road thing, and I wrote about this myself yesterday, but uh, you know, you look in one way, you sort of look at their record and in Simpson's entire time, they've only had a negative, uh, a worse than 50% away record in one year of his coaching. So they've, you can argue they've sort of held their own. My problem with it is they're so dominant at home Mm. that if they're then conversely poor poor away, the gap between the best and worst is such that I just think the psychological ramifications are that, you know, do they start struggling away and it gives the players a bit of a a crutch to go, well, you know, we're no good on the road. And what would worry me most if I were him are, as much as the margins, obviously, the fact that they gave up eight goals in a row to the Saints mm. and 13 goals in a row to the Cats. So when they're away and things turn against them, there's a bit of a, a lack of resilience in being able to arrest the slide. Christian, you touched thing. on this last yeah, week. But I was about to we, say. Do we, do we not give an... And again, I'm not defending this, this thrashing. It, it was probably the worst performance anyone's put in all year, particularly for a, a, a flag contender. But do we not give enough credit to how difficult it is to actually do that road trip? No, we don't. Ten times no. a season. Yeah, we don't. I'm, I'm big on this. No, you've only got to look at the career games of West Coast players, mm. which is significantly lower than every other club. It's, it's, it's one of the hardest road trips in world sport. You know, it's four hours there and back. The time difference becomes an issue. Um, so it's hard for them. I make no bones about that. I guess the other side of that argument is it also exacerbates their advantage at home. Yes. And therefore you do get that, that gulf between yeah. how they mm. look at home, where they look unbeatable, like the best team in the comp. And then the following week, they look 
horrible. Yeah. Christian, anything to add before we move on from the Eagles? No, I was going to say was, that was how I view it as well. It's a bit of a simplistic way to view it, but I just couldn't see the, the difference between the two efforts of Port Adelaide go over to, to Optus Stadium and the West Coast, you know, show two weeks ago to their effort on the weekend. And again, it comes down to there's a myriad of numbers and what drops off. And I'm, I'm a bit in the camp of, I think it is that they're so good at home that they're not, they're not really much worse than all the other teams away. It's just that their, their difference between home and away is probably quite stark, but to me, yeah, what Rowan said, and it's it's not numbers, it's not it was the effort. The effort just mm. wasn't there, and they were so dominant against Port, who I've got big raps of this year. You know, I expect Port to be top four, and West Coast just dominated them, and just didn't look like the same team two weeks later. Mm. Uh, we'll keep watching the Eagles, I think, with interest over the next few weeks to see what comes of that. Uh, Rowan, you were pretty hot on the Swans preseason, thought they might sneak into the eight, and they had a pretty good undefeated start for a few weeks, but uh, seemed to have fallen back down to earth over the last fortnight or so. Do you still think they're going to make finals? I'll say yes. I like to back my own <laughs> judgments, and it'll be a particularly good call if it gets up. <laughs> Um, it's it's a worry. The the thing that intrigues me is how have the, they been brought back to the fold? Mm. I think one thing perhaps we missed um, in that early form was that the senior players were holding their own as well as the young guys impressing. But opponents seem to have been able to shut down those younger guys. Are they getting, you know, it seems silly to say after six games, but are they starting to feel a pinch a bit? You know, um, certainly there's a... A feel I've got a feeling that opponents have, have worked them out and closed them down a bit, and then it gets back to that old traditional Sydney grind sort of thing, and they don't have enough really good players who can play that game now to sustain it. Mm. Um, so it's a good coaching challenge for Longmire, but, yeah, I'm, go- I'm going to stick to my guns there and have them making it. Uh, Jake, the Tigers yeah. now, three of the last four they've lost, and they've got the Bulldogs coming up on Friday night and they'll be without Dustin Martin. Uh, are we ringing the alarm bells for the Tigers yet? Uh, look, I reckon there's been five occasions over the last four or five seasons where something's gone wrong um, with the Tigers and everyone's jumped to this sort of this conclusion and, and it's always proved to be wrong. I'm not saying that the alarm bells ring, but I would say this is probably the point which is probably the most significant of any of the the issues that they've had to overcome. This is I don't recall a time where they've looked kind of they've been in a such a precarious position. Um, they were really flat against the demons, losing Dusty. And I, I remember I wrote a couple of years ago they are a much different side when Dustin Martin doesn't play, and he's for for the type of player he is. He's he rare. I think he's only I think this will only be the ninth game he's missed in. 250 now so um very durable player but they when he doesn't play or when he plays poorly and, and is quiet they they do struggle a bit the tigers and i think with him going out playing the dogs who were undefeated and looking really good i don't think they're going to beat the dogs and all of a sudden they've lost four or five well they haven't done that at any point in this era so there will be a few little worries but if any if, if you think i'm suggesting that they can't make finals or, or win the flag absolutely not but but i still think there there's a little bit to be concerned about concerned by at the moment particularly i think tom lynch is the one that for me that just hasn't really you know jack rewalt's playing brilliantly i think um as a key forward tom lynch struggling quite a bit well it's to me just they're still gonna win it yeah, they're still going to win the flag. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of reasons why they'll still win it. But they've been in these sort of mini troughs before. Mm-hmm. They've had uh, concerns over individuals before. Tom Lynch in his first season never started that well. They managed to find a way. The yep. main thing for me is, and I'll be interested in your thoughts on this, Christian, 
I mean, I can't back it up with numbers or anything, but I reckon the brand of football they play week to week is the closest to the brand that we see prevail in September. They play it on a weekly basis. It's a different game finals and that pressure game, they, the level of pressure they apply, plus the ability to then get it to the outside, that balance, it is the perfect finals football formula. And I reckon they, um, they pursue that better than any other team in the competition. And that's why I think when push comes to shove, they are the most reliable Premiership tip plus like playing, last if year. Playing like if they play the finals brand of football now, why have they lost three of the last four? Well, they're not. They're in a they're in a trough. But the other point I was going to make was that last year proved to me they don't have to finish top four. I know they did, but they lost the qualifying final. If they finish in the eight, that's enough. They can easily win four finals in a row to do it. Yeah. I, I I would say they can. I, I don't know about easily. I think it's I think it's I think any team is going to struggle massively to win four in a row, even the Tigers. But I do agree that if anyone can, they're the most likely to do it outside the four. But I, I would be—I I wouldn't like their chances of winning four finals. I—I I, I just wouldn't like them to do it if they don't make the top four. Um, mm. Just like any team, I think we've seen it, it time and time again that it's so hard to do. And going yeah. back to their game style, I mean, again, you, you look at what they're their output is at the moment, it's clearly a bit lower and they're dropped off. They're not getting the inside 50 dominance or potency once inside there. But what's been interesting to me across the last four games is what the opposition's been able to do and been able to sort of manufacture to beat Richmond. And that is the one thing Richmond do is, and we've spoken about it for years, is their scores from turnovers. They want you to turn over the ball. They, they turn it over as much as you do, which most games turnovers are even, but they protect theirs really well. They turn their ball over deep in their forward line and, you know, sort of win it back off the opposition more in the midfield. But the last few weeks, um, well, it's the last four weeks, they've had the third lowest mark play on percentage against them and the fourth lowest kick to handball ratio against them. There have always been numbers in the last three years that the opposition's been high in. They've always kicked the ball a lot more against Richmond because there is that heat inside. It's like, let's just kick the ball forward and hope for the best. Richmond are waiting for that. The mark play on percentage as well. We You talk about Richmond's game style and it stacks up for finals footy. It, it does. It, it sort of... Again, simplistic way to look at it. They're sort of structured game styles, chaos game styles. Richmond are more chaos, but in 17, back half of 17, they showed that they could play a, a, a structured control game style as well and beat teams that wanted to go slower. Um, but you're sort of seeing teams that want to take Richmond on, go long, play on fast, they just fall right into Richmond's trap. So what the teams that have beaten them done recently is handballed the, handballed them all, kept it in closer. Um, and when you take a mark, don't just play on for the hell of it. Don't just try to get it in quickly to keep Richmond out, of, you know, because you think their defence is out of shape because they're not. They're sort of, they're, they're, they sort of ghost you into thinking, all right, you know, come, come fast, come through the corridor and kick it there. And then Grimes and Asprey and Broad are the first three players to run into that spot and take the intercept mark. So, um, yeah, just looking at it from the opposition's point of view, there, there does seem to be a few game styles that are, that are holding up and going to give you a better chance to beat Richmond. It's just how many of those teams can actually... Um, execute that on the day. Speaking of uh, premiership football, a few weeks ago, we sort of talked about the uh, then undefeated teams and that they were ticking the premiership boxes, Christian, the demons and the dogs. Are they still doing that? Yeah, not much change. They're both, um, as I said, one and two from scores from turnovers. Um, we know Melbourne's forward line's always, you know, been their weakness um, as such. I think they've got themselves up to seventh or eighth for scores per inside 50 and the Bulldogs are number one. So, you know, Melbourne have gone from world record last last year that we were sort of saying to seventh is a huge improvement for them um but 
yeah, both teams for the first six rounds, no no clear weakness for either of them, really. As I said, Bulldogs may be their defence, um, mm. but in terms of if they're having 20 more inside 50s and 100 more disposals, then they're protecting the defence the best way possible. They, they both seem to have gone through the same mould as well because we saw the Dogs won the Premiership in 2016 and then there was a little bit of sort of, you know, bit of a, a lull away and now they're kind of rebounding because they've got a mature list. It was quite a long, young list that won it, um, but they've now got experience on the park and a mature list you know, sort of gunning for another finals assault. The D's had that prelim. Uh, well, like they got spanked in the prelim, but they had, they made the, the prelim in 2019 and sorry, 2018. And then they've sort of had the funk since. And now that same core list is now matured and is now older. And they're now having another kind of dip. So it seems like they're both in very similar positions in terms of their flag assault. And, um, I think the maturity is the thing I've noticed from both of these clubs, the on-field leaders, the uh, the way that they all speak in the media. Um, the Melbourne especially have, have quite impressed me with how uh, the club seems to be cohesive and uh, they've used the word selfless a lot. And you can kind of see, you can see it. It's quite evident. And um, it's little wonder, I think, these teams are undefeated at this point. And just another little one I saw from Melbourne on the weekend. I sort of said that to a guy in here um, this morning. I look at blokes like Clayton Ollett. So... Go back to GWS and what everyone's saying about Toby Green. Looks like that player that says, come follow me, stands up, being great captain. I watched Melbourne on the weekend. I saw Clayton Oliver do it at least three times. I saw Christian Petrarca do it at least two or three times. Just go, I'm going to win this ball and I'm going to get it forward. Saw Max Gorn do it three or four times. And then you see Jake Lever taking control of their defence and, you know, barking instructions and winning the hard ball. It's just like there's four guys that are that would be captains at any other club that are sort of, you know, follow me, boys, and they've got a, a few of them. But... And again, with the Melbourne, good point about, you know, um, consistency and sort of, you know, just keeping the same team. As, as I sort of said in the, I'll give myself a little bit of a pump up here in the in the um, preseason big call, I said Melbourne will finish top four. And exactly for this reason is that they had that, they hadn't changed much. What And the, the big question last year was, was 2018 an aberration? I don't think you can play that well for a year if it's not within you. So mm. that wasn't, it might have been an aberration, it might have seemed like an aberration, but it was proof of how good Melbourne could be. They just needed to find that again. They, they didn't throw 10 players out the door. They, they kept the same structured team. I think, you know, the main guys missing from the prelim um, that they lost to West Coast to Bernie Vince. Uh, I think Jordan Lewis was there and Jeffrey Garlett. Nearly 19, 18 of the other players are still there. So, correct. I think Melbourne have stuck fat with, you know, stuck with what they've got and it's hopefully going to, you know, prove fruitful for them by the end of the year. Just a quick point on the Bulldogs. I've been asked a number of times lately to compare this version with 2016. And I, it, it's really striking. I, I just think this version of their side is so much better in terms yeah. of talent than yep. 2016. But I think that can really work for them as well because there's still enough of those players present in the lineup. You've obviously got the same coach. Their personnel's better. Clearly, their forward line's better. I think, Christian, they were 12th for points scored in 2016. You know, yeah, exactly. They, they got through 2016 with... A, and it was. It was based on finals. Their home and away profile, just it's the outlier of all the last 15 premiers was their yeah. home and away profile. So, so my point is the personnel is that much better. They've, they know what it takes to, to get that flag. So if they can sort of you know recapture that spirit, which shouldn't logically be that much of an issue... They are perfectly set up to win it again. Mm, uh, well, they could be undefeated when they meet. I think it's round 10 or 11. So we could have another Geelong St Kilda uh, 2009 on our hands, which would be something. Uh, Collingwood President Mark Corder says that he expects the club can still play finals. Rowan, your thoughts? Uh, he's deluded. Okay. Um, well, it's interesting, really. I mean, 
it, it's sort of mathematically. <laughs> that's, no, I think that's what he said. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I can't. I just don't think they're good enough. You know, I don't think this is a, a decent side in a slump. I, I don't think that. You know, I'm not impressed by many of the newer players they've brought into the side. It looks like a few journeymen and sort of role players. I think Sidebottom and Pendlebury's contributions are they're not as effective as they were. But the interesting thing about those comments were that, you know, they really sort of put the pressure on the coach, don't yeah. they? And it says one or two things to me, that there's a disturbing lack of communication between the coach and the president, or, um, and this is the more sinister interpretation, you know, are they wanting to ease the coach out and the president just subtly ramps up the pressure by saying, well, you know, our expectations are, are pretty high. I think the way this is panning out, I don't know. Look, if you ask me to sort of predict how this will pan out now, I've just got a feeling Nathan Buckley might pull a pin himself. And um, I think good on him for sort of seeing the writing on the wall and, and doing that. I guess the question you guys, we talked about this pre-show was, you know, if they lost to the Suns this week, you know, would, would you talk about replacing him now personally? I wouldn't do that because I think it just creates more problems a la North Melbourne with Reece Shaw. You know, a, a stand-in gets generates a few wins and this pressure builds to give them the job, you know. I, mm. I reckon, in a way, if he was to announce mid-season, I won't be going on with it. The club was to say he will remain coach. It gives them three months of relatively mm. clear air to find a long-term successor. That would be the smart move, I think. I agree that that's the smart move, but I don't think there's any way in the world that if the Pies lose to Gold Coast this weekend that he's going around next season. There's just no way. No, well, I agree. I agree with that. The, the Pies would need to embrace a rebuild, which means that you'd have to offer, if, if Buckley's the man to undertake it, you have to offer him three or four years, and I cannot yeah. see Collingwood offering him no. three or four years. Um, so, yeah. Look, no, pressure's lot- on. Look, look, they were they were ordinary. And to be honest, they were they were lucky to be leading in that last quarter against the Bombers. I thought the Bombers completely outplayed them. And I remember I spoke to Rowan uh, last week and, and I said, I'm not sure who's going to win that game because Collingwood's very average. The Bombers are very inconsistent. But the, if they both play at their best, I think Essendon will win. And they just... We've, we've been talking about it for a while with Collingwood. They just really struggle to kick a score and they're just all their forwards that they've got a very overrated forward line on paper and all, and so many of these players like, you know, Hoskin Elliott had that really good year and has been just down since. And um, obviously Jamie Elliott, not there. Cox, not there. Uh, Maya check, another inconsistent player and who struggles when he has to lead the line and Josh Thomas, who's been just notoriously overrated for his career, just not being able to contribute. Um, They've got too yeah. many, to me, they've got too many, I, I don't know why I keep saying journeymen because they haven't been at more than one club, but <laughs> uh, plotters, to be honest. And, and you know, uh, imagine uh, Noble. I, I know Noble's been okay for him, but is he a guy who's going to be in your next premiership yeah. side? Their Must bottom go- five is like a bottom 11. They're, they're, there's too many guys in the team every week that you think, gee, how do they get a game every single week without any questions? Yeah, so that I'm looking at a, a best 22 and a list that really needs a rebuild. And they've shot themselves in the foot, obviously, in terms of that rebuild by, you know, giving away 
<laughs> three guys who were pretty damn good in, in Trelaw, Stevenson and even Phillips. You know, mm-hmm. tell me those three wouldn't be making a pretty big difference. Mm-hmm. Was, well, the good news is... a great call by someone over the weekend just comparing those what Collingwood lost with those three compared to Essendon who lost Fantasia, Saad and Danaher. So three versus yeah. three. What Essendon brought in is... It worked for the now, but it also worked for the future because they got, you know, Nick Cox and a few extra draft picks in. Collingwood got neither the here or the future. No. They're, they're just in no man's land at the moment, Collingwood. The good news is they'll get Nick Dacos through the door, uh, you suspect, um, next year. And no pressure on him to perform. No, him. no, none at all. He's, uh, he's been talked up like he's better than Peter. Well, our draft experts uh, highly rated him, and I think a few around the traps have. So, uh, Pies fans, just keep a lid on him because, you know, the, the pressure, we've already seen what it done to someone like Jack Watts. So, Can I, can I tell you just quickly, he, he is a great kid, Nick. Um, I used to be on the Margrook footy show, and Peter was a regular panellist on that, and Nick would always come in with him. So I actually spent a bit of time with him around the set and whatever, and uh, this is like, three, four years ago. But even then, at the age of, you know, 14 or whatever he was, great kid, really mature, sensible kid. So um, he's certainly got that box ticked as well. Absolutely. Uh, Let's move on. Uh, We tasked Christian with something a little bit different this week. Uh, We kind of wanted to look at forward line best buds. And I say that in terms of those who link up the most for for scores. So score assist leaders uh, going back to 2002. Christian, what can you tell us about I guess, score assist leaders and the number one to, you know, however many combos you want to put up? Yeah, so what I've done is I've just looked at it sort of going one way. So which player has assisted another player's scores um, the most often? Um, And again, as you mentioned there, the stat we've been recording since 2002. So even looking at some of these players and um, thinking back to the past, it it does, you know, I think, kind of wish if you know if you can have the magic lamp and a genie i'd almost wish to be able to go back and do you know full capture of you know every game since 1897 or you know 1950 because we don't have um you know robert harvey tony lockett kicked a thousand goals how many how many of those were assisted by robert harvey and you know how many times did darren jarman assist jason dunstall we don't have any of those but what we can sort of give you is 2002 onwards and Again, yeah, it's an interesting sort of way to look at it. We, we record score assists. We talk about who's the leading score assist, but I'd never actually sat down and looked at who is assisting who um, and the best duos in the competition. So there is one duo that, or one player that's assisted another player a lot more than everyone else. So the leading pair is on 84 uh, score assists in that time from one player to the other with the next most at 69. So a big gap of 15 to the leading pair. But Over their um, careers. Correct, over their yep. career. So I'll, I'll start with um, sort of, you know, the, the top six or five, if you like. So um, in sixth position, we got Mark Lacroix, who assisted Josh Kennedy 56 times um, when they played together. So 56 of Josh Kennedy's scores came from a Mark Lacroix assist. So that gets him into sixth place. Now, this, place. now when you're talking about an assist, so it's a, a, a kick, a handball. What about a, like a slap? A slap in their direction is that an assist yep so again we'll call it a contested knock-on so as long as you've passed the ball to a teammate who either gets in who gets the possession so an uncontested possession is an automated assist so every handball receive every lead mark and every mark that the guy that's kicked it to you get the assist if it's a free kick or a contested mark um you just got to take into the the equation was he the only target of the kick so if mark lacra kicks inside 50 to jack darling on his opponent and Josh Kennedy on his opponent and Kennedy takes a big strong mark, that's not an assist because right. we would have said, all right, Josh Kennedy's won his own ball. Mark Lacrasse put it into a hot spot and 
um, mm. Kennedy's won his own ball. So it's it's Mark LeCraft, um searching for Josh Kennedy and finding him, hitting him up. So um, yeah, there has to be sort of the, the, the sort of you know not a luck, not a lot of luck in score assists um, because he's, it clearly was that was the intended target of the kick. Um, Is it unusual that it's a forward to another forward in this case? Wouldn't you think that it would actually be sort of midfielders that yeah, would be well, delivering the ball more? They are the only two forwards in the top. So, yeah, again, so starting at six, the, the next duos are all the top five and they're, they're all midfielders assisting yeah. forward. So it sort of probably does show how well they work together because even, you know, I'd have to go back and look. I don't think Mark LaCroix probably played 50 games before Josh Kennedy got there even. So it's not even Mark LaCroix's whole career. So they just have, you know, as soon as Josh Kennedy came to the club, got recruited to West Coast, they obviously had a good sort of connection going. Uh, Mark LeCroix was always a good assist player, but yeah, you're probably right. Looking at the other ones, it's it's what you picture an assist being that the midfielder streaming out through the center square or down the wing and hitting up a leading forward. So, um, so yeah, moving to fifth position again, I'm pretty sure we we again because we start from 2002 score assists, we don't have these guys' whole career recorded for score assists. But Lee Montagna to Nick Rewalt 57 times um, on the score assist, and that's the highest for. Nick Rewalt. So Lee Montagna was his uh, best assist player in his team, in his time at the club. Again, I would have thought maybe, you know, if you had a guest off the top of your head, I would have probably said Nick Del Sano could have been up there. Mm. Um, but actually second for St. Kilda in that time was Lenny Hayes to yeah, Nick Rewalt at 53. Hayes. So there's, you know, you sort of try to, you try to guess it before I looked at the names and it's like, I guess Del Sano. I saw Montagna said, yeah, that makes sense. Hayes, uh, uh, Del Sano must be second and then checked and Hayes was second. Oh, yeah, that makes sense too. Yeah. So you probably <laughs> forgot how many good midfielders are. Nick no, Rewalt played with 270 to 300 games each. So yeah. Um, so the fourth pairing, Josh Kennedy, again, this time assisted by Luke Shuey. So Luke Shuey's assisted Josh Kennedy 63 times in their career, and they've got a few more years uh, ahead of him. So that number could uh, grow again. Third place, Mitch Duncan to Tom Hawkins, uh, 64 times. So to be third all time, again, it's probably. I think Mitch Duncan's one of the underrated players. I think everyone rates him and he's a good Geelong player. But he's always been seen as Geelong's fourth best or fifth best player. I think he's one, he's Geelong's one of their best deliverers inside 50, the, the money kick, as we call it. And he's always been good at that. And, um, yeah, obviously, as I said, hit up Hawkins for 64 scores. He's, ad- he's added that new dimension now, too. In fact, if you watched last week, you probably would have said the combination was Hawkins to Duncan, wouldn't it? <laughs> the other way around, yeah. yeah. Couple. Um and yeah, well, the second best is Hawkins again. So this time, Joel Salwood um, yep. to Tom Hawkins, 69 times. How um, many was Duncan to Hawkins? 64. 64. So a little bit of a gap. But as I said, so um, you look at second, third and fourth pairings are 69, 64 and 63. So all pretty close together. But it's the leading pairing at 84. Um, and they're a current pairing too. So they've still got more games to go together. Unfortunately, we won't see them uh, link up this weekend. But... Uh, Dustin Martin to Jack Rewalt 84 times. Um, Dustin Martin's assisted Jack Rewalt. Uh, and as I get the century up, oh, it makes sense too. Well, he could get the century up. It makes sense because Dusty's quite an unselfish player. Yeah. And we sort of spoke about it on the pod at the start of the year. I thought he'd gone overboard with his score assists in the first couple <laughs> of rounds. It seemed like he was going out of his way to have a lot of score assists. When I ran the query anyway for the last three or four years, it was um, Dustin Martin number one, Tom Hawkins number two. So it's pretty surprising to see Tom Hawkins sort of the all the assist he has. He's not high up because he's just assisting to anyone that's there. It might be Gary Rowe, it might be as we said, uh, Mitch Duncan running through and Gary Ablett Dangerfield. But it's it's more that the key forward knows. All right, Mitch Duncan's got the ball. I know exactly how to lead to him. I know how hard he's going to kick it. And it's just that connection between midfielders and forwards that are clearly standing up here. 
And just, on Haw- just on Hawkins, I can't think. In, in fact, I can think of one other key forward in my time watching footy who is as good in offering scoring chances to teammates, and that's Jason Dunstall. Yeah, I was going to say, as a kid, no, as a kid, I'm talking eight, nine year old kid, full forwards didn't handle. Jason Dunstall <laughs> would have at least three or four handle. I used to go to Waverley a lot. He used to handle a lot. And I used to say that as a kid. I'm like, why does he handle if he's a full forward? You'd ask my dad, why is he handling the ball? I was like, because he's a good player. Ahead, <laughs> that's what you should his, do. Yeah. Ahead of his time, Dunstall. See, I mean, that, it, it sounds ridiculous, but because he was surrounded by Lockett, Ablett, Modra, etc., I often thought he, he still got undersold because he wasn't a spectacular player. He was a very efficient player. Mm. But he is, you know, it's funny. I, I've been wrapping him up all weekend. I was talking about how good I find his special comments. You know, he is a bona fide champion of all time, Jason Dunstall. Mm. Fair enough. Anyway, any, sorry, oh, that's my nostalgia coming in again. Get him on the pod. <laughs> any, um, he might be contracted to Fox, unfortunately. <laughs> would, be, would be nice. Uh, any obscure names there, or I mean, yeah, one. So again, I just sort of started to look at club by club. So who was the Adelaide leaders and Brisbane? And again, probably last year and previous years, we've been um, accused of maybe making this a Carlton podcast. But I did, <laughs> I did jump upon Carlton's uh, leading duo and mentioned it to you, Matt, and you said yeah. you might have heard something in the past. Anyway, so it's actually Ryan Houlihan to Brendan Favola, forty-three yeah. scores, which probably surprised me a little bit, but. You've heard Fev talk on this. Fev loves Houlihan. He said it was the best deliverer of uh, of the ball inside 50 that he's, he'd ever had. So um, I think Houlihan used to just take the weight off the footy but keep it low and put it out in front of Fev. And um, I think, he, yeah, it was Houlihan was Fev's favourite player to have kicking the ball to him inside 50. So it actually they're in, doesn't They're in the top three duos. So, yeah. It is Buddy rank in all of this. So who's... Yeah, so he's got, again, at Hawthorne's time. So he's... Sam Mitchell. Sam Mitchell and he were the highest. Oh, sorry, Jordan Lewis is actually ahead. So Jordan Lewis um, assisted Lance Franklin 53 times and Jared Roughhead 53 times. So they sort of sit (laughs) Pretty fair. So, yeah, exactly. He wasn't discriminating. Um, And then there's Sam Mitchell to Lance Franklin at 49 occasions and then Cyril Rioli to Lance Franklin 45 times uh, and then Luke Bruce to Jared Roughhead 42. So, again, when you look at Hawthorne and – the time in the three peat. There's there's a whole heap of names, you know. Um, as I said, Sam Mitchell to Ruffhead, Sam Mitchell to Franklin, Cyril there's to so Ruffhead, Cyril to Franklin. I really hope that every time that um, Sam Mitchell or Jordan Lewis catch up with Buddy, that Buddy's paying for lunch because there's a few there's a few well, goals. I, I, I heard I heard um <laughs> and I heard this on commentary and I, I can't remember who was talking about it. I think I reckon it was Dunstall on commentary and um someone had assisted someone score and they said, you never forget who assisted your first goal. And they asked Dunstall, he couldn't remember. Someone handled it to me over the top. But I forgot. And I just thought that's a good quirky one. I would love to go back and see you assisted X of scores. And then you went on and played 320 games together and you assisted him another 70 times. It's yeah. It's something that just, it's nostalgic and it's just fun to look at. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed sort of, yeah, that, that task and just looking at it in a different way, just who are the best score assist duos. And yeah, as I said, Martin and Rewalt, once you, once you sort of think about it, it makes a lot of sense. I reckon you need, to, you need to comb through history now, Christian, and go and do those older games retrospectively. Because it's I reckon start, it's, start going through the tapes and marking yeah, them down. Love to, yeah, I'd love to get well, some. Uh, as I said, I reckon a really obscure one as a kid was Darren Pritchard hitting up um, Jason Dunstall. I know Darren Jarman was always noted as seriously oh, good player. Pritchard, Pritchard he he probably him. got him over the line in that '89 Grand Final when Johnny Platten got knocked out. But I reckon two of the highest historically, it'd have to be Harvey to Lockett. And I, would, yeah. I do want to stress, I didn't see this one, but Bill Hutchison to John Coleman, I reckon it'd have to be up there. 
Mm, would there be enough footage though? That's the only question. Uh, you don't, you'd be, you'd be going seconds of footage of John Carlman. <laughs> exactly the, right. The player I thought which would feature quite highly was Boomer Harvey. One because he played so many games, and two because he was one of the best short kicks going inside fifty. But mm. I guess the problem was oh, he had a revolving door of playing at north and. <laughs> Yeah, Drew so Petrie he, may be the highest one on that yeah, list. But. Drew, Drew Petrie was 50 occasions he assisted him. Um, mm. But, yeah, you're right. It was just probably not having that consistent key forward target. Yeah, Fair enough. Uh, let's move on. We are running out of time. The Adelaide medical sub debacle was something that uh, also caught my eye from the weekend, Jake. Don't know how much of this you saw, but then the, but Will Hamill came off the ground with about five minutes left in the third quarter. Uh, and Tom Lynch was the medical sub for the Crows, but he wasn't ready to go on. He wasn't, uh, he hadn't warmed up. He, he wasn't strapped up and he hadn't, you know, taken his pills apparently for his, his toe injury that he had, um, that he'd suffered. So it seemed like the Crows put up an injured player to be ironically the medical sub for, a, you know, an injured player coming off. One of the weirdest things I think I've, I've seen in modern footy, and uh, I tell you what, it's Launceston that keeps delivering some strange moments, but what was going on there? Uh, I can't tell you. It was strange, um, I, and I agree. I haven't seen something like that before. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like if he's going to play, if he's going to be in the team, he should be starting or not as not the sub. Yeah. So I, I don't understand that. And He didn't come on for the first five out. minutes. So there was 10 minutes of overlap where the, where the yeah. pros were. And, and they, I know they lost the game and you can't say it cost them the game. But, well, but, but why not? They, lo- they, they didn't lose by 10 goals. They lost by a kick. You know, you, 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 there's no reason. You, we can't categorically say that's why they lost. But had he been on and had that, been, had that change been instant and ready, you never know how the game pans yeah. out. Yeah. But I, I just feel it was... Just yeah. a bit of an amateur hour move. And I know they've come out and defended it and said it was all how it should be, but I don't know about that. Well, that, that to me was the one I thought that sometimes the answer just makes it worse. The answer oh. to the question actually makes it worse. And that to say we messed up. Nicks, to say that was planned and it, it cannot be planned. So you can't tell me that before the season started and they brought in this concussion rule and everyone was up in arms going, we don't want to be one short of the bench. We can't be one short on the bench. Give us another sub player. Give us another sub player. <laughs> We'll give you a sub player. Oh, we won't want to. We don't actually want to use this guy. And if he's called <laughs> upon, he won't be ready anyway because that's what we're planning for. You didn't plan that. Like I, I can understand maybe saying, "All right, we knew when he got called upon, he needed five minutes. He needed to take his painkillers, get his toe, or whatever." You didn't say, you know, we planned for him to not have socks on. We planned for him to not have his jump yeah. weight. The and he looked a mile off the pace too. Like he, he wasn't. Well, obviously he wasn't going to play a full game, but he, he should not have been on even for a quarter. Uh, Rowan, do you think we're, we're going to see the end of this sort of stuff and clubs are actually going to take it seriously now? Well, yeah. Oh, look, it's just amazing, isn't it? I mean, to be to take that gamble that he's not going to be required. The most disturbing part of it for me was hearing, I won't name him, but a very senior and respected football commentator um, on TV say in the aftermath that, well, surely we've got to go to five on the bench. I mean... Come on, you know, but like where seriously. Does that... Where does it end? Then we're going to have eight on the bench. Exactly. Is that is our default reaction to every time a club or the AFL makes a meal of something? So we need more. We need more. You know, enough. Yeah. Uh, it's honestly, I don't think I've seen anything like it for about five or ten years in footy. Just the, the sheer incompetence to think you know, that you know things would the, be okay. The the <laughs> probably the closest example in the um, debacle stakes I can think of is. Gary Sidebottom missing the bus to the 1980 preliminary final and Geelong having to drag Peter Johnson out of the stands where he was sitting there eating a hamburger and drinking a milkshake for a preliminary final. 
Actually, that reminds me of that 2013 elimination final when Nick Digan was having a Subway sandwich in the uh, in the stands and someone got injured in the warm-up and he had to go down into the rooms. But, of course, that's... For, didn't he? Didn't he end up kicking four, four. goals? Didn't he? he certainly did. Uh, all right, we, we, we're, we're, um, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but we need to move on. Justified hype or hyperbole, the segment where I'll say a statement and you guys tell me whether... The hype is justified or I'm speaking in hyperbole. Let's whip through these if we can. Uh, I'll throw it open to whoever wants to answer this or, or who wants to respond to this one. But I think Alira Lee has been the best off-season recruit this year. Justified. Uh, hype justified? Or... Absolutely justified. No no player from another club has made as big a difference as he has to Port's back line. Great player, great judgment, strength, negates, creates as well. Yeah. Still can't understand why Sydney let him go, but massive pickup for them and possibly a difference between them winning a flag or not. And for a future second, so you knew always knew Port was going to be decent this year, so it's going to end up being about a pick in the late 30s, you'd think, depending on academy and all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, he's, he's been incredible. I think his, uh, his ability to firstly keep his feet but regain his balance so quickly as well as, as a defender, it's just such an important skill uh, or, you know, I guess... You, you can't really develop it. You either, you've either got sort of, you know, balance like that or you don't, but his attributes are so really good and they, they're really good and they, and they suit Port's uh, style of play. And I think he's just been incredible. Any, any other nominations for recruit of the year just before we move on? Nick Hines got yep. to be up there. He, I think he Nick, I really like Nick Hines. Yeah. I was about to say that he was pretty, he made a few turnovers on Anzac day, but I think he's been good. And again, just, you know, with Saad going out, he's brought that pace into off halfback. I think Adam Trelaw had a pretty slow start first two games, but he's really lifted, getting some good goals out of him. Obviously, we know he's a he's a high accumulator as well and just slots into that midfield. Um, yeah, I was going to throw up a Bulldogs player as well. Probably wouldn't say the best one, but Stefan Martin's been yeah, huge, it's good shout. huge for Bulldogs in terms of structure and what yep. they've been able to do with other players around him. So Allowing Tim again, English to be a forward. To, mm. yeah, Ali has been the best of all of them, though. Uh, Christian, Lockie Neal deserved to be suspended for his umptouch. I think so. I I get why he did and things, but I don't like the look of that. I, I I think it needs to be, and it's it's Tom Hawkins doing the same thing with a little bit of a tap on Matty Nichols. You don't touch the umpire. It's it, whatever. If you've got an excuse, great. Then you might not get three weeks. You might get one week. But I think so. You can't deliberately touch an umpire. That was as deliberate as it gets. It was pretty demonstrative. It was, you know, it was sort yeah, of like, hey, look at me. Come on, do the." And I heard someone sum it up perfectly. The umpire's in charge of the game. You can yell at them. But if they choose not to listen because they're, they're, they're restarting the play with a throw-up, that's up to them. So, um, yeah, I'm probably big on this one. I think, I think yeah, the, the, there needs to be black and white rules if you don't touch the umpire and you make an example of players that do. Not that oh, it matters anyway, you, given he's out for... precious, you young blacks, seriously. <laughs> Oh well, I mean, I'm a supporter, and I saw I saw Greg Williams do it and thought the same thing. I thought, well, he didn't do much there. Um, he I got don't think he weeks did. And yeah, you know, it was a little bit of a forearm <laughs> to the chest. But I, again, from that day, I'm like, okay, if that's the way, I'm happy with that. Don't touch an umpire. We know now, no one's touch an umpire. So, yeah, I, I, know, I wonder yeah. what happens when these umpires get home, walk in the front door, <laughs> and the partner goes to give him a hug. Don't touch me, <laughs> uh, Jake. This is uh, an interesting one. The ESPN Footy podcast has a curse on it. Oh, I um, I don't know what to say. Obviously, um, obviously we know what you're you're referring to there. Uh, Josh Dunkley, our good friend, who was on last week, and um, you know, picked up a what looks to be, if not a season-ending shoulder injury, very close to it. Um, yeah, I'm shattered for him. Um, yeah, just really, 
in all Australian form, playing so well, the Bulldogs playing brilliantly, and um, it happens right at the end of the game. Not that it makes mm. any difference, but you know, you, you're so close to to getting in the showers, and it, it happens late in the fourth quarter. And um, yeah, just feel really flat for him, really disappointed. And I, I know he's going in for surgery this week, and wish him all the best. And no doubt he'll get back at playing great football. And I think he's just been in terrific form this year. And as we touched on with him last week, Christian, some of those numbers and some of those kind of groups he was in, um, in terms of what he was been producing, not just this year, but um, through his career is pretty impressive. And he definitely yeah. flies under the radar. We talk we'll too to- much about his recovery and he's obviously so, so astute at looking after his body, but you just get a collision injury like that. You, no matter how, how much you sort of put into the recovery and off field stuff, you can't avoid that. We'll have to get a Zulu witch doctor to try and bless the podcast. And, well, we had the any. we had the Dugowie Howe um, incident the week before, and now we've had now we've had dunks. So I, I don't know who have we spoken about this week. <laughs> <laughs> Just avoid <laughs> Nick, Nick Natanui, poor bloke. Unfortunately, touch wood. Yeah, well, he's prone. Uh, next one, Jake. I want you to ask me this one if you've got it in front of you. Uh, I don't have it in front of me. Well, I'll ask him. <laughs> Thank you, Rowan. Someone's prepared. Well, I was just it just occurred to me that the twelve thirty PM Sunday time slot is a winner. Do you yeah. think it should replace the one ten PM one? Hype is justified. Absolutely, it should. Uh, it means that you don't have to overlap for that quarter of the the early game to the three twenty start on on seven, and it's only forty minutes extra in your day where you're watching footy. I think the twelve thirties a great time slot on a Sunday to start because, you know, most Sundays I'm, I'm pretty lazy. I just want to watch some footy or if I'm working or whatever. Um, yeah, start it as early as you can. I know it's probably not great for uh, people in West Australia, say, who are probably still having their their, their brunch, their avocado on their eggs or whatever. Um, but I think it's a winner. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's pull it in full time. And I know the AFL likes maximising eyeballs on screens. So maybe it will end up being a permanent fixture. No, it's um, good. I've always yeah. thought that one quarter overlap was a bit strange. You know, the, the, the second game starts when the other one's kind of getting mm. towards the end. And it's like, just start at half an hour or 40 minutes earlier and you don't have that, you don't have that issue. Agreed. Uh, last one before we wrap things up for the day. Uh, we, we mentioned it earlier about how we were going to hold horses on the new rules. Uh, so I'm going to say this, the new rules have saved footy, Christian. We're we talking in hyperbole finally. Uh, I think they did everything they could, but they haven't quite. It's, it's uh, Coaches always win. That's always exactly what I was about to say. The coaches are being able to bring back to what they want. So, uh, yeah, stoppages have jumped up a massive 10 per game in the last two weeks. That's always the first sign for me of when I know coaches have got the control back of the game um, is their ability to sort of slow it down, create stoppages. Uh, you know, scores were down back to lower than where we were at 2018. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's probably another another battle and uh, some more to look at for Steve Hocking and his team. But we are still getting some games that are, that seem out of the box. I was watching the Hawthorne Adelaide game with a couple of friends, and one of them made the point. He said, "This is like watching an NBA game," and yes. it really was. It was just up and down, goal, 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 and it was just Great like guy. constant. It was Great, red, um, ball, red ball footy. That we had a clash jumper. Uh, you and red balls coming everywhere. <laughs> it was just nineties, pure nineties looking footy. That one. Um, but yeah, I think. We've, we've had a few stinkers too. Let's, let's not forget that. And uh, look, coaches, they, they always come out with a way to sort of just, you know, they, they mould the way they want and they can force, you know, stoppages. Christian who'd, have thought, who'd, who'd have thought people in the football media would jump too early on a, a, a trend of precisely two weeks and, and draw <laughs> ridiculously um, overblown conclusions from it? I, I was shocked. 
having said that though, I, I do think footy still looks a little bit better because you're still able to, to try and bite off that inboard kick. So I think footy's watchability is still better than it was last year. That just isn't uh, translating to the scores at this point, which, you know, if you have to have a saving grace, I guess that's kind of it. Uh, I think that's all for this episode, guys. We've, uh, we've jammed a lot in. So thank you very much, Rowan, for joining us for another week. Pleasure. Uh, Jake and Christian, I'll speak to you next week. Uh, and everyone at home, wherever you are listening to this, we'll speak to you in the next one. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod, wherever you get your podcasts.